0: Hello and welcome. This is the Into the Wilderness podcast. I'm your host, Byron Pace. It is the 2nd of November 2020 and uh, got kind of a crazy week ahead of us. Huge elections in the US. Uh, Go out and vote. Have your voice heard. That is my only message for that. Um, So it's going to be interesting to see what the outcome is at the end of the week. Over the border from where I live in Scotland, England is going back into four weeks of lockdown. People being asked not to leave their house again. Not quite sure what's going to happen in Scotland. We have been a whole new tier system here. I know that there's quite a few countries over in Europe as well going back into lockdown as cases of coronavirus are rising. So uh, stay safe out there, people. Um, don't go crazy and buy lots of bog roll, like everyone seemed to do last time. Um, And keep joining me on the podcast for a little bit of an escape from reality. But thank you so much for for joining me this year in particular, but over the last couple of years. Uh, All of your comments on social, all of your rates and reviews, it really makes a massive difference and it keeps me going. It keeps me uh, in the knowledge that I'm reaching people and, and Hopefully, making a difference with these amazing guests that that I bring to your ears. So keep letting me know. Keep letting me know what you think, and I'm always open to suggestions. I get quite a lot of emails actually uh, with suggestions for guests, and sometimes I manage to get those guests on. I, I really do try and get all the guests on that are suggested to me. Sometimes it takes a little bit of time, uh, but I definitely do reach out to them. You can always contact the show with anything that's on your mind. Podcast at paceproductionsuk.com. Sometimes it takes me a week or two to get through that, depending on what's on my desk, but I will always get back to you and uh, reply to the emails for the show. Anyway, so this week I have an amazing guest. I have Amanda Monty on, and we're going to be talking about fire, and particularly fire management and fire mitigation, and the use of fire as a tool in the landscape. Uh, for positive outcomes for uh, conservation and for humanity actually it's as big as that Uh, we're going to be talking a lot about wildfires uh, the history of fire suppression why that's been uh, a problem we're even going to talk about how fire affects fish believe it or not you probably have never thought of that connection before we've got it covered it's a it's, it's a topic that I am personally fascinated in. So I was really pleased to get, um, Amanda on the show. If you want to check out other things that she's up to, you can follow her on Instagram, which is at a underscore Monti M O N T H E I or com uh, for her website. But before we dive into it, I need to, of course, say thank you to my top tier patrons for this month, who include Richard Stevens, Richard McNeil, Ronnie Speakman of rdcontracting.co.uk, Tom McRath, James Benjamin Normandale, James Marchington, the guys at South Esher Stalking, Josh Starling, Thomas Cameron and Mark Zabroski. Thank you very much to all of you, and thank you very much to every single other Patreon who is not a top-tier Patreon, and so you don't get your name shouted out, but uh, it all makes a massive difference. Uh, Even if it's just for the value of a cup of coffee a month, uh, it really helps me produce these shows and put more into it and be able to dedicate more time to it. If you would like to check out the Patreon page, it's just patreon.com forward slash Byron Pace. We had a break from the competition that we normally run on every show uh, two weeks ago, but it's back. So in conjunction with our partners on this show, uh, Modern Huntsman, who really helped make this show even possible. Uh, we are giving away a copy of volume three. We've talked about Modern Huntsman a lot over the last couple of years. So there's some podcasts that you can go back and and check out if you want to learn more or just head over to modernhuntsman.com. In fact, if you go on there, you can check out my new monthly column into the Anthropocene. It's been running for two months now. And actually uh, later today, I need to put my brain into gear and put my my third copy together. Uh, so I'm not entirely sure what I'm going to cover, but that will be out probably in the next week, actually. So if you've already read one and two, three will be out uh, in only a couple of days after this podcast goes to air. So all I would like you to do to be in a chance to win a copy of Volume 3 is it's going to be an Instagram and Twitter competition. So when this podcast goes out, just share it for the rest of the world to see that you are listening to the Into the Wilderness podcast. And as long as you tag me, I'll be able to see everybody who's done it. And I will pick somebody at random to win a copy of Volume 3. and I will announce your name on the show in two weeks time. So that's it for me. I really hope you enjoy this intriguing conversation. Don't forget, if you want to check out more um, about things that I'm up to, uh, follow on at Byron J. Pace pretty much everywhere. And you can also visit the website, www.byronpace.com. Amanda, welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. It's great to have another podcaster on the show. I don't get to interview other people who podcast all that often. Uh, how are you doing? <laughs> What's it like to be on the I'm other doing side great. of the mic?
1: <laughs> this is b- very bizarre, yeah. Um, but thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Oh, absolutely. Now, we're going to be talking and taking a deep dive into all things fire and fire management. Uh, but before we do that, because I don't, uh, you know, we haven't really had a conversation before, the two of us. What, uh, what is a little bit of, of your background? Because I, I believe from listening to a few of your shows that you're actually a firefighter.
1: Yeah, I spent four years on fire crews. Um, my last season was in 2019. I took this last fire season off uh, to sort of reassess and maybe see what direction I wanted to go in because I've always been a freelance writer. Um, I've worked at a couple magazines. And so I felt myself kind of being pulled in two different directions. Um, yeah. And so I kind of took the summer to reassess and see if I wanted to continue fighting fire or if writing was more of the path that I wanted to pursue. And what it showed me was that I'm still not really sure. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know what I'm going to do next summer because I really do miss fire so much. Um, but other than that, yeah, I've um, I've. I, started fighting fire 2016 i spent so just to, just to on in, an engine i spent just to
0: interrupt you there I, I'm, I'm, I'm curious to try and work out where in your life this started you know how, how far out of, of school or whatever are you when you started fighting fire
1: yeah i got out of uh college in 2013 i spent a couple years freelance writing at like little newspapers in michigan mostly writing about sports i was a sports writer writing about um community events as well like just like you know, kind of run-of-the-mill, like, newspaper reporter. And decided after a couple years, uh, I had a few friends that were both women, actually, who had fought fire while I was in college. And they had con- they continued to fight fire after um, we all got out of college. And it kind of just piqued my interest. I kept, like, sort of looking at what they were doing and looking at their images and hearing their stories. And it was it really fascinated me. And so I was like, I'm thinking about this a lot. Maybe I should just, like, Maybe give it a shot and, and pursue it. Uh, so I took a few classes in 2015 and uh, got a, yeah, got on a, on a, an engine in 2016 in northern Idaho and made the move out west that way.
0: That's incredible. Uh, we should probably preface with this by saying that uh, well, I mean, you've just alluded to it by uh, the fact that this was in Idaho, but you're you're in the US. This kind of uh-huh. concept of fighting fire as someone who is not a full-time firefighter, is something that is probably quite alien to people, certainly in the UK where I'm based and and across Europe. I mean, we do have uh, part-time people in the fire service, but it's not particularly common. And the kind of fires that we're fighting are are very different. I mean, you're specifically talking about wildfires, Mm -hmm. aren't you? Yes, yeah. So just explain how that yeah, explain how that whole system works because I've watched a couple of amazing documentaries about uh, these, you know, people fighting these wildfires and I think a lot of the, the 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 fire service that are working on these people have a day job as well as doing this um as a part-time job.
1: Yeah, it's really it's interesting here. Um it's you're basically Sucked into this sort of seasonal lifestyle when you choose to do fire, because you have at least four to five years, maybe more uh, before you are even technically qualified often for a permanent position. So especially with these federal agencies that we normally work for, um, I was an employee for the Forest Service, my four years of fire. Uh, yeah, they they rely on a seasonal workforce, and that means you're working really hard for six months th- of the year. and then you're kind of just laid off and left to, like, you know, pick up the pieces afterward and, and, and maybe try to find a job in the off season, but more or less you're often so burnt out from the summer that you're just relaxing, uh, maybe skiing a bunch, you know, but it is (laughs) not, it is a really odd lifestyle where you're working. You're just completely consumed by this for six months of the year. And then you're just kind of dropped off like, okay and we're done now. And then you don't have much to do through the winter. <laughs> so as much... Oh, go ahead. And I was just gonna say,
0: I mean, is it actually viable? Is Are you are you paid enough to be able to see you through a whole year? Or do most people end up going and getting another job? Is that is that kind of how the cycle works?
1: Yeah. So I think, you know, you can collect unemployment, Um But I think a lot of people, the reason we get into FIRE is that we like that engagement. We like that level of engagement uh, in our jobs. So I do think a lot of people end up getting jobs, you know, working at a ski resort or maybe ski patrolling or doing arborist work or something like that. Um, But it's, yeah, it is. I'm sorry, what was the question again?
0: <laughs> oh, no, I was just a- a- asking if if it was, if most people tended to just do that. But I mean, you, you've kind of answered that by saying that, you know, a lot of people g- grab a second job in the, you know, the, the other part of the year where they're not fighting fires because uh, the fire season is summer season, basically, is it?
1: Yes, exactly. Yeah, April through November or October, generally, uh, generally speaking. And then, yeah, I mean... I've, I've worked at magazines in the off season and I've found honestly that especially when you're on a hotshot crew, um, which generally have really, really busy summers, it's hard to convince yourself to work in the off season. Um, You don't generally make enough. Well, you can make enough money to sort of to swing going uh, or to, um, you know. Get by in the winter for sure, but we're not compensated all that well for what we do, and it doesn't. It's not really sustainable in the long term for a lot of people, and for me included. I think that was a big part of why I decided to get out of it when I did was because I was like, I think I can find a way to make better money and not destroy my body (laughs) this way. It it looks (laughs) um, brutal. (laughs) Yeah, and it's not only that. It's like you're expecting it to be brutal, I guess, but you're also not. You're not necessarily expecting. Um, the strain that it puts on your relationships, on your friendships, on your life in general. Like I was moving uh, six to seven hours away from uh, from my hometown or from where I live now to fight fire every summer, and that meant not seeing my friends all summer long. Uh, you know, I was rarely coming back up because it was such a long drive. So you're just putting everything on hold, and I think I think that is um, you know a big part of what makes it unsustainable because you really are so burnt out come November that you're like. Uh, do I really want a job this winter? Like, can I really swing that mentally, physically, emotionally?
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a lot. Now, we're, we're going to talk a lot about fire management and, and the role of fire in mm-hmm. the landscape, particularly pertaining to the, the podcast that you've launched. Uh, but before, just because I'm curious to know what this the actual day-to-day and what that lifestyle is like through fire season and also paint a picture. And I suppose this, this is probably very relevant to, to build this foundation before we go and talk more about uh, the science and the future and what we need to learn about fire in the landscape. It, is What is it actually like? T- tell me what happens when you get a call and there's a wildfire. Like, Just talk me through that, that experience.
1: Yeah, we're generally, um, you know, I worked on a forest that didn't really burn uh, a whole lot. So we were often traveling for fires. And so, you know, they would, uh, they would call us maybe a fire uh, popped in Utah, and they needed resources. And so they would call us, and we would get on the road. And spend you know maybe a day, day and a half on the road. We would get there, and then we would immediately sort of be plugged in to uh, the situation. And those first few days on an on an emerging incident like that, on a on a new wildfire, are always you know running and gunning, kind of kind of a little wild. Uh, you don't, no, nobody has a really firm grasp of what's going on yet, and you know it can that can be really unpredictable, and can be you you, you just don't really know what kind of assignment you're walking into, and so. I guess what often what that often looks like for, for hot check crews specifically is, uh, you know, digging line, making sure that uh, ground fires aren't able to continue spreading on the ground by just basically removing fuel, uh, digging a sort of trench, I guess you could call it, um, and making sure that you have a break between, uh, I guess, just a break, a fire break. Uh, when things are up in the trees, when the fire is up in the trees or spreading a little more... Uh, I guess spreading a little more extreme, um, spreading faster, you can't really just dig a line and have that work. So that's when you start incorporating aircraft. uh, You start incorporating operations like burnouts where you're actually putting fire on the ground. Uh, That's a big part of what we do in fire is, uh, is you're putting fire in the ground. You're using that fire's energy to sort of suck the energy out of the main fire or to like basically remove the fuel between your, you and the main fire. So you're like back burning Um, towards,
0: towards fire.
1: Yeah, something, exactly. Something like that. Um, uh, we call them burnouts. They, you know, you know, you can create a huge buffer with a burnout and especially when you have, um, swaths of forest that you are are really trying to protect or, um, or communities or subdivisions that you're trying to protect. Those things can be really effective if the weather's right. Um, so that's, Honestly, those are the most fun assignments that we do, and those often happen um, when fires are when we're kind of running and gunning, when fires are burning really intensely. Uh, and then you also have days that are pretty mellow, where you're you're what we call mopping up, where you're going out and literally putting your hands in stump holes and making sure nothing's hot, and if it is hot, putting water on it and mixing it up. And that's like the much less glorified version of firefighting that I think a lot of people don't realize uh, is a major part of our job. Uh, we do that. We rehab areas that have been burned over already. You know, we rehab fire line. We do a lot of chipping of um, of brush and stuff that we had to cut out to create fire lines. Uh, there's a lot of like, you know, not super glorious work that we do as well. But I think the the fun stuff, the stuff that we read or the reasons that we do this job are, you know, those nights that we get to do burnouts, uh, showing up to an incident that nobody really knows what's going on and you're just kind of like trying to keep up with it. Um, digging line right next to the fire those are all like you know those that's kind of the reason we all get into it
0: i can see the excitement factor in this i mean what what kind of characters are drawn to this kind of work because it's definitely not going to be for everybody
1: right yeah i mean they often say it's type one uh, or type a i mean not type one but type a people uh you know maybe really relying on adrenaline sort of need to be sort of constantly engaged by the work that they're doing. I think ADD and ADHD is actually, I don't know if it's been necessarily documented, but I do think a lot of people in this job have, uh, you know, maybe like a low level, uh, of ADHD where they're kind of always, um, they're, they're kind of always trying to find something new to be engaged with, or, uh, they're kind of a little bit all over the place and need something intense to keep their attention focused. Uh, and i don't know other than that you know you do you do have the stereotype of the the type a personalities of people that are you know always kind of like um seeking that i don't know seeking leadership positions or trying to like sort of take control of situations but you also you have a variety of people that get into this into this job and i think um the beauty of it is that I've heard it referred to as like an orchestra. The beauty of it is that you can find things for each one of these types of personalities to do. You can find ways to engage any different type of personality. And um, there are, you know, there are a variety of people that end up in this job that you that you wouldn't expect. I've worked with. Um, you know, i've I've worked with women that are like, Incredibly feminine and incre- incredibly like they have sort of all these traditional like feminine qualities about them. And then I've worked with dudes that were combat vets and were are like really intense and really sort of almost overwhelming in their personality. Um, and I've seen people people from both of those sort of paths get along really well, become really good friends. In fact, uh, through fire as a sort of medium to meet different types of people. It's I I think that's what I appreciate sometimes the most about fires the different types of people that you end up meeting along the way.
0: Yeah, I can I can see how that kind of extreme environment, especially one where you're relying on your teammates, can really pull mm-hmm. together, uh, pull people together and create bonds that you don't get in other walks of life.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, anything, it's amazing what a couple hard shifts can do for the cohesiveness of a group. Uh, you can Pull 20 people together who've never met, and within, or maybe, you know, 10 of them or 15 of them have met, but then you have five or six new people in the group, and you can become, you know, something like family within a couple of weeks. And that's almost always just a result of working really hard together and overcoming sometimes very insurmountable challenges together. Oftentimes, failing together, too, I think contributes to that a lot. But it's, it's cool. It's cool to see that sort of play out um, on the fire line and on fire crews.
0: Now, fire globally has been something at the forefront of most people's mind for the last sort of 18 months, two years. I and mean, we've seen some massive fires in Australia. We've seen the Arctic on fire. Well, I think that the largest area in the Arctic burnt in history. Uh, we've seen multiple large fires uh, in the States. We've had Many fires uh, over the last two years here in Scotland, a place where we don't really associate with with wildfires, and everything that you've been discussing and we've been talking about for the start of this podcast has been fighting wildfires. But a lot of the discussion which, well, needs to be had, and I think there's a a greater realization of it now, is this idea of, of fire mitigation. And, and that really is a core of a lot of the conversations that you have on your podcast, which I really want to dive into. But maybe before we dive into that, what was the the kind of catalyst that made you start your, your podcast? Now, I know, I'm not sure if it's changed its name. I know that it was you had a name, but now you're, I think, changing the name of the podcast because I want to direct people towards it. So how can they find it? <laughs>
1: Well, right now it's called Living with Fire. That's going to change in a couple of weeks because there's another fire organization called Living with Fire, and we're kind of uh, confusing some people. So, uh, but they can find me um, Living with Fire if you if you you know search it on Instagram. It should be one of the first things that comes up, and uh, you can find me on Twitter as well, Apple Podcast, Spotify, all of that. Uh, when I do change the name, maybe I can. Uh, maybe I'll let you know. I'll. I will let you know. Actually, what that name change. Will yeah, be. do that.
0: We'll, we'll, we'll but, put it out. But that, yeah, because uh, yeah, people will be able to find it. They can find it through through you. But yeah. So what was what 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 initiated you wanting to start that?
1: So there's a big sort of discrepancy, I think in in the perception of wildfire in the West, especially. I think a lot of people see it well, most people see it as this negative, destructive, sort of apocalyptic thing when in reality, uh, these forests and the landscapes that we live in have relied on fire and have coexisted with fire for millennia, uh, for much longer than we've been around. And it's, there's this gap that, you know, we need to be suppressing these fires. We need to make sure that they're not commu- affecting our communities. Uh, but I was sensing that, you know, suppression isn't our only answer to a lot of these problems. And, uh, and a lot of people think it is. I'd say so it's I the cause sort of, of a lot
0: of our problems, suppression.
1: <laughs> it's the cause. Exactly. Exactly. So we've been suppressing these fires for, uh, over a century and it's caused, you know, massive, um, overgrowth, massive, you know, bug kill when, you know, it when when we get droughts it just affects it all a lot more substantially I guess uh, so we have an an immense amount of vegetation that hasn't burned in decades if not centuries and you know that's creating more intense larger faster burning wildfires uh, so my, my my objective was to sort of highlight some of these voices in the fire world that are saying like it doesn't have to be like this we just need to you know inst- instill some of these policies that we've been sort of talking about for Decades and that we know are going to be beneficial and that are going to work. And a big part of that is, or most of the most of what they're talking about is prescribed fire, uh, creating these sort of buffers around communities, building community resilience to wildfire, uh, making sure that people understand that that wildfire is actually very beneficial, um, and that a lot of the fire that we're seeing on the news and whatnot—that's a very small percentage of the amount of fire that's actually on the landscape most years. Uh, so. So as much as you know, we have these bad fires. We call them. We have these fires that you know burn, o- burn over communities that destroy habitat. Um, we also have to look to the fact that fire is necessary, and that we need we need a good amount of of good fire, and we need a huge amount of community education to understand uh, the benefit of that fire. So that was kind of the objective was to give us sort of uh, to give a soapbox to a lot of these. These scientists and uh, and and people who are working in this realm who maybe don't have as much of a platform in like the storytelling realm and uh, just trying to get what they're what they're doing out into the world and try to inform more people of of what fire does for our landscapes.
0: Yeah, fire ecology is is utterly fascinating to me, and you know it, it's something that I I'm always intrigued by when when I hear people talking about it. and I, and I think I'm, I'm probably attracted. To the these aspects of, of land management, which are quite controversial because it, it has been because like like you say, most people view the fire that we 're seeing across the world as entirely negative, and I think that it has been lost that fire is a natural component of of cycles which um, help life proliferate. Uh, here in in Scotland we have uh, what we don't call it prescribed burning, but that's exactly what it is. We call it muir burning up in Scotland, which is this rotational burning of our heather moorland. Uh, I mean, the the primary function of that is for another. It's used as a management tool for uh, grouse shooting in particular, but it does have. A number of spin-off benefits and we'll probably need to do a whole podcast on that with, with somebody who's like an absolute expert and science on that although as with yeah as as with, is often the case with with fire the science of of fire management is there's a lot of gaps in it so you know we have a lot of gaps in the knowledge of what are the benefits what are the negatives of uh, managing our uh, our uplands with fire. But one thing that it is for sure, and, and this goes to, I guess, a lot of the conversation that we're about to have, it is a very, very good tool for managing fuel loads. And all of that, Moreland, that I'm talking about is on top of peat. And peat will burn, this uh, underneath the ground, it will burn if you have very hot fires on top of it. And when we're talking about prescribed burning, we're talking about cool burns that are reducing fuel loads and minimizing the risk of very, very hot, big wildfires in the future. Um, Maybe what we can do just to kind of lay the landscape for how we've got to where we are today, and you can speak to this far better than I can, is, is some of the history of uh, forest management, I suppose, more than fire management in the in the US, in particular. I mean, Smoky Bear is the character that I think most. Even if you're not from America, most people will think of Smoky Bear. Smokey Bear informing kids about the importance of you know not leaving your barbecue and the the risk that it uh, the risk of wildfire in the landscape right. as a function of mm-hmm. activities that we undertake as, as humans and being careful with fire. But in a mm-hmm. way as much as that was an incredible success it was almost too much of a success because it meant that people viewed anything that was uh, not just fire but but anything that was fire and burning forests or anything that was really involved in managing forests through uh, you know maybe uh, rotational timber harvesting stopped. It completely ceased. And this was on the back of some really, really big, big fires historically in America. But maybe you can uh, talk more to that. I only kind of know little snippets. Yeah,
1: yeah it's funny. I, I think like I often bring up Smokey the Bear and I have in the past anyway. And I spoke with a fire sociologist, which is like the craziest title to me. I just love that there's such a thing as a fire sociologist. They study the sort of um, societal impacts of wildfires. And she was like, you know, I, Smokey Bear is like such a scapegoat for a century and a half of bad forest management. Like we just blame Smokey the Bear. Um, when in reality, you know, we have to look at the at the sort of deeper picture. But you're totally right. I often, you know, look to Smokey the Bear and I say like, you know, that really framed an entire generation's perception of fire in it. And it really sort of built this foundation of fire being bad uh, from the f- what 30s or 40s onward. But the basis, the foundation of our sort of problems right now seem to have started. Um, obviously, you know, Europeans showed up in the 1800s in the West and started taking uh, or started making sort of cultural burning that was occurring on tribal land or well, everywhere, I guess, at that point. Um, so so indigenous people were were doing these cultural burns and it was done in a sort of cyclical nature. They were doing it to encourage plant growth and uh, and, and for a sort of cultural just generally a, a cultural practice mm, the basket and weaving in northern
0: california is a really fascinating example basket of weaving yeah. is
1: fascinating yes that's going to be my next episode of the podcast as oh, soon as brilliant. i have enough time I, i've just read a paper on it. it it's
0: really really interesting <laughs>
1: Fascinating. So the woman I talked to, you know, she the reason that she got her community and her tribe back into the cultural the practice of cultural burning was because she wanted to create baskets for her grandchildren. Um, But the plant that they used to create the baskets wasn't growing anymore because they hadn't put fire in the landscape in so long, Uh, and so she was she was encouraged to start sort of advocating for more prescribed fire on her uh, in her in the land surrounding their area. Because she wanted to be able to build basket or create baskets for her grandchildren as she started having more grandchildren, or has, as her kids started having kids, um, and I thought that was fascinating, and that's what my next episode is going to be about. With uh, her name's Margot Robbins. Anyway, I think that that really sort of framed the whole what what happened for the next century and a half was uh, making these cultural burns illegal and sort of colonizing. The ways that we interact with the landscape uh, in the mid 1800s, and then that led to this this uh, fire suppression management model that we have been sort of stuck with since then. And that was all perpetuated massively by the 1910 burns, uh, which which killed dozens of people, um, burned millions of acres of land. Because th- those are the, the
0: biggest. So those are still the biggest single fires in history in in the US, aren't they? The 1910.
1: Yes. Um, although some fire ecologists are saying that this summer, you know, with the the huge sort of, of weather event that we had in early September on Labor Day weekend or immediately following Labor Day weekend, we had this huge wind event that's really rare and it was rather historic. And we already had a lot of fire on the ground before that wind event occurred. And when it did occur, it was, you know, these 50, 60 mile an hour winds coming from uh, from the east, which is rare, and that caused a huge spike in fire behavior over the course of that week. And so, a lot of fire ecologists are saying that there that might have, you know, yet to be deti- determined because of acreage and whatnot, but that could have been a bigger week, a bigger week in fire uh, behavior than the 1910 burns were. That's again, that's yet to be determined, but that's That's the um the the extreme nature of the fire season that we had this year.
0: Am I right in thinking um, that the nineteen ten fires started because of the old steam railways spitting sparks out the top yes. of the huge, trains.
1: huge part of that. Yeah. Yes. Because that that
0: was exactly. <laughs> I was I can't remember what I was where I was reading this, but it was something. Um and they were saying that the these rail tracks that were basically transecting all of North America, they were just sparking these little fires everywhere in the forests because of the 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 um, the coal and 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 wood smokes and and embers that were flying out the chimneys of these of these steam engines.
1: Yeah. So you know, we were starting these fires. Um, we we had this massively destructive fire season. And we weren't necessarily prepared for it. And that led to us just saying like, okay, fires need to be put out as soon as possible. We need to suppress these things as quickly as possible to prevent infrastructure damage, um, damaged communities, deaths, anything like that. Um, also at that point, you know, a big part of that was timber, you know, uh, I think as a crop. after that, it was just a, like for, as, as a, a crop. for value exactly. yeah. and yeah. also agriculture mm-hmm. and, and agriculture as well. Um, so that just sort of led to a perception of fire be a, a very negative perception of fire for the next hundred years. And we're kind of still living with that. And I think people started to recognize in the seventies and the eighties that prescribed fire would be very beneficial and that we needed to start introducing more of it. Um, but the public perception of fire just in general, whether it's prescribed or wildfire, is still has still traditionally been pretty negative you know you get a lot of smoke in the air uh, that really perpetuates health issues for people for certain populations um that's a big part of why we aren't prescribed burning more than we are right now is that they produce smoke and you have to be really cognizant of that uh of of air quality in a lot of these communities um but yeah that's kind of that's kind of the basis of it and I think we've been fighting ever since you know the 70s 80s to sort of reverse the idea that we need to be putting these fires out is First thing in the morning, basically, there's a... This is the before 10 a.m. The the 10 a.m. rule, exactly. So that was basically, you know, we have a fire start overnight or we have a fire start at 6 p.m. at night. That thing needs to be out by 10 a.m. the next morning. And that's that. Um, And that was the basically the umbrella sort of policy for, for forest management, for fire management in the in the United States from like the 30s until like the late 60s, early 70s, even into the 80s and 90s, from what I've heard from people who worked in fire in those eight, in those uh, decades, like p- people in the 90s and the early 90s were still being told we need these fires out by 10 a.m. Whether or not that was the general sort of accepted policy, uh, that was still being told to people in the 90s. So it took, it's, you know, at this point, we're still trying to reverse the damage caused by by those policies, by that sort of full suppression policy, and that fire doesn't belong in these landscapes, and that we need to protect our infrastructure and our communities and our lives by putting them all out.
0: So what was it in the 70s, 80s, 90s that made people start to realize that actually, We need to think about fire. Uh, Yes, there are some fires which we need to suppress to protect life, but we also need to think of fire as a management tool. What was it that suddenly made people think, oh, hang on a second, maybe there's a problem with suppressing all these fires?
1: I am not really sure about that, actually. That's a great question. Um, I talked to Stephen Pine about this, and I think that there was this general sort of... And I I don't remember what he said specifically, but I I feel like maybe there was just this general cultural movement towards recognizing that these natural processes are natural, in fact, and that in many of these landscapes rely on these natural processes and that maybe um, interacting with these processes in the way that we had been isn't necessarily beneficial. Uh, I can't say explicitly why why that happened I'm trying to remember um, maybe some of the policies that came through or maybe some of like the uh the different people who were involved with that conversation at that time, but i can't uh, yeah I, I think was-
0: he did mention uh, I think one of the examples that he gave is that germination of of some plants actually require fire, so if you right, don't right. do not have fire in the landscape, you will lose those plants and I know um I wrote an article for Modern Huntsman a couple of volumes ago. Uh, that was looking at grouse globally. And um, we were looking at rough... Uh, I, I was writing about roughed grouse, which I actually had had, I, I had no real personal experience of, of that particular species of grouse. But in the research that I was doing, one of the issues uh, behind the massive decline across almost all of North America was the fact that they need uh, sort of successional forests to survive as part of their life cycle. And I mean, not just them. There is there a whole host of uh, particularly bird species that require this. And they were used to getting it through the, this sort of natural cycle of fires, burning little bits of old growth forest down, which would then regenerate. But this uh, very sort of protectionist view of fires across North America resulted in them essentially just not having the habitat that they need for their natural life cycle. And so in some places, uh, they'd lost 98% of the populations that they'd had in the early 1900s. And I know that that realization started to come in like the 70s, 80s. And I dare say there was probably other species where people were saying, why have we lost all these species? And some of it was down to the fact that there just was no natural fire in the landscape anymore.
1: Yeah. I mean, we often forget that these species have been around a lot longer than we have and that they're fire adapted. Um, trees are fire adapted. Trees on the West Coast in most landscapes are fire adapted. Um, plants are as well. Animals are as well. I was talking to you earlier uh, before we started recording about about how steelhead are adapted to fire and oh, how, yeah. uh, trout and how trout are adapted to fire and how we often think, you know, I've had a lot of people ask me recently, especially In the wake of the Archie Creek fire that affected the North Umqua, a lot of people are wondering how that's going to uh, impact that population of steelhead. And the answer is that these. These fish have been adapted, well adapted to these environments for millennia. And even if maybe our fires are burning a little bit more severely than they have in the past, or maybe in some cases even quite a bit more severely, uh, those, whether they're low, moderate or high severity fires, those things have a place in these ecosystems and they have a place in the life histories of these trout and steelhead and salmon and in fact, the reason that we have such hardy, healthy steelhead in a lot of places is because of fire and because they have these sort of disturbances to their habitat on a regular basis, whether they're floods or landslides or fires, they rely on those disturbances. They rely on a highly complex environment to stay healthy and to adapt well to their, to where they're living. Um, and the, the biologist I talked to about that, Gordy Reeves, he... You know, I thought this was really profound. He said, "We don't need to be protecting these places. We need to be protecting the processes, and so we need to be we need to be sort of protecting the process that fire plays, uh, or the the, the 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 impact that fire plays on a landscape. We need to be protecting that. We don't need to be protecting the landscape from fire. We need to be recognizing that fire has a huge impact and is is often wildly beneficial for these places, and we need to make sure that we're upholding that." in a place that has had fire for millennia. And, um, not only that, but, you know, maybe not doing as much erosion control because in fact, a lot of streams rely on that sediment that comes in the immediate aftermath of wildfire, uh, habitat that, that those, those sediment flows create habitat. They, um, they bring in nitrogen and other compounds into the stream. Uh, these are all pretty necessary for fish growth, for aquatic insect growth. You know, there's a there's a it's number a, of ways it's a that very, very benefit.
0: complex web. And you're exactly. right. Yeah, you're, you're so right. It's um, I, I think there is a tendency for us as humans to. And I'm going to say something here, which is slightly contradictory. There's a there's a tendency for us to want to control every aspect of, of the natural cycles. But equally, we have already changed the landscape so much that I think we're in a position now where we have to be part of that management but have a realization of what these natural cycles are. Um, And that goes to using fire as a management tool or being careful about, uh, like you were talking about, I mean, that's something I hadn't really considered. I sit on a fisheries trust here and we're often looking about at sediment runoff from forestry planting for example into rivers now for obvious reasons if you have sediments that you know, cover spawning uh, reds then suddenly the the salmon can't spawn or the 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 ova can't hatch uh, but there is a a certain amount of that cycle where you're used to where it, it's a natural component to have sediment get pooled into river systems and then that creates an entire habitat for for insects to hatch which is then the food that the fish feed on it's a very very mm-hmm. complex web
1: it is and it's a hard balance like you said it's really hard to balance the fact that we've had such a huge hand in managing these landscapes for the last century and so therefore we're kind of interwoven at this point we can't just step back and be like never mind we're just going to let the natural world you know do its thing and not have any sort of uh management over it. Because at this point, you know, we have dams in place. We have uh, infrastructure. We have, you know, our water quality. We have all these things that are in place that we kind of need to make sure that we manage well. Um, but we also need to recognize just the place of these processes in in what's, I guess, in like the foundation and in the formation of, of the landscapes that we love. Um, so it's a hard balance. I don't really know how to de- Manage that balance. And in fact, I asked Gordy about this as well, and he really didn't know. Um, But it's (laughs) well, that's a great question, isn't it? It's something that, like, it's fun to think about. (laughs) <laughs> it is. So, it's fun to think about.
0: When when you were digging into the the steelhead story, was it the case that uh, fire suppression had impacted populations? Or what was the kind of outcome of that? What, what, I mean, what was it that made you look into that in the first place? I mean, it's intriguing because most people don't think fire fish. They think fire things that live on land.
1: Yeah, I think that I have been, I've had an interest in this since I started fighting fire because I am an angler as well. And so I've always wondered how fire might impact um, the things that I love to do outside of fire season, and this was just one of the many, many sort of strains of this story that I've that I've been pursuing. I've I've written about cutthroat in, um, in like in Utah, and I have a story about that coming out um, on Patagonia's website soon. And I wanted to just sort of extend that to steelhead and 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 see if that if they had any real if there were any real differences in how steelhead interact with fire um, versus cutthroat. And really, there's not. I mean, the the ultimate. The sort of foundational idea here is that fire has fire and fish have coexisted for forever, and that they will continue to do so. That they will likely be just fine, um, despite maybe a rise in higher severity fires that that are largely caused by, you know, climate change or or suppression. And I think I think one of the things Gordy was saying was that we anticipate or that we expect to sort of fish and enjoy rivers in these really scenic beautiful landscapes uh, that we expect to go and fish the north umqua in these beautiful old growth forests that are really green and really healthy seeming when in reality we need these sometimes stand replacing fires or at least fires that come out and burn through this under this underbrush we need those things to refresh and uh, I guess yeah refresh these systems we need, You know, a steelhead especially need these these regular disturbances in order to actually thrive. Uh, And if you have an old growth forest that hasn't burned in thousands or in hundreds of years, um, those steelhead are not being required to adapt to their environment in any sort of beneficial way. So, you know, there's a place for old growth, of course. And of course, we don't want our old growth burning. But when they do burn, just recognize that they've always burned and that um and that this is part of the sort of process and that those you know, maybe I think I think Gordy said that the biodiversity of in of a forest uh you said secession earlier. Um, but yeah, the 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 of a forest following a wildfire, with whether it's maybe six months out or a year out or five years out, uh, that biodiversity is almost more than you would get in an in an old growth forest. Yeah, and you need true, that biodiversity. Yeah. You need that. You need that refresh of that ecosystem to really help those fish. Uh, you know that it gives them more food. It gives them a greater chance for uh, evolving into that environment. It gives them a challenge. You know, and in a lot of these fish, they're hardy because of these challenges. They're healthy because of these regular challenges. So, I thought that was really interesting. I that guess that is
0: interesting. And just to go back to, to something that you, that you brought up about um, protecting. Uh, the the natural cycles rather than a, a particular element of the environment, and I think I think that goes uh, or or speaks to uh, the conservation movements and how we're thinking about conserving species and where we, whether we should really be thinking about conserving a species as most of the public might view it, which is the static thing, whereas really what we should be doing is conserving the the systems that exist uh, whether that you know, at, at whatever level that allow the continued and it's very hard for people to think of this because it's over such a long period of time but the continued evolution of these species because nothing is static we are always moving to some a point in the future where things will be different, where, I mean, there there is examples of, uh, you know, very rapid evolution uh, that we're seeing in, in certain species, you know, over almost the period of a lifetime. And it's protecting these systems to allow that to continue to happen, just the same as allowing these natural cycles to to function the way that they always have. And fire is one example of many, where we basically put the brakes on it. And we killed that cycle,
1: right? And as humans, it's really hard to recognize that while our favorite fishery might has be- might have been burned over by a stand replacing fire by something that was so severe that it burned all the way down to mineral soil, um, it's hard to see that you know maybe our fish favorite fishery isn't going to be fishable for the next ten years. But we have to think. You know, these things did happen regularly or did happen historically, maybe not on a regular basis, but they did happen historically. And those those systems recovered and they recovered over the course of 15, 20, 50 years, maybe. Yeah. Um, Which is inconvenient for us virus, because
0: we only live for like so 60,
1: 65 <laughs> exactly.
0: to 70 years of like really good time where we can get out and fish and hunt. Exactly. <laughs> so yeah, it's really it's inconvenient so for us, but really they're... they're, they're the, these um, cycles and the natural world around us isn't entirely there just for our own pleasure. And we need, to, we need to consider the, these much longer time horizons in our land exactly. management, and I think that really speaks a lot to the to the issues that we face not just in fire but in many other other aspects you know from fire to to agriculture to how we manage our um, our marine systems and our, our fisheries is that our, our time horizons are far too short
1: yeah, you know like it's it's a bummer to think my favorite river isn't going to be fishable it not might, might not even have fish for the next ten to fifteen years. Uh, but it is it it's worth recognizing that these processes have taken place historically and are altogether pretty necessary for for the viability of these systems. do you think
0: i mean we've a lot of the discussion that we've been having has been essentially f- focused around the ecology of these environments. but do you think one of the the problems that we have trying to explain the use of, of fire as a management tool? Do you think that's tied to the the climate change debate? Because we we have it so drilled into us now that it's all about locking carbon down into the ground. We've got to lock it into bio, uh, biomass so that it's not going into the atmosphere and as soon as somebody sees a fire they think well look at all that carbon going into the atmosphere and and this is something that we face here i mean it's one of a number of arguments but you know one of the primary arguments against managing uh, the heather moorland in this sort of rotational mosaic that they have, is, well, this can't possibly be good for our attempts to meet the the Paris climate agreement. This can't possibly be good in, in our efforts to, to halt climate change if we're burning the landscape. And clearly, everybody can, you know, from miles away, they can see the smoke going up into the air. So it's a very visual example of what's happening. And I think that there's a, uh, a really poor understanding of the risk and I had this discussion uh, very briefly at the end of a podcast recently, when we were talking about uh, it was actually a really fascinating discussion about carbon capture and when sometimes planting trees, you actually end up with a worse state and less carbon captured than if you just left the land in these sort of you know more shrubby, sh- short bushes on 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 peatland. We were spe- specifically talking about heather moorland, and I asked the question at the end and said what is the risk analysis for this? So even if we have a a case where, okay, we now have a landscape that has a lot more trees in it, if we are not also putting in place a very careful management system to mitigate the risk of having very big wildfires, which then go and burn this huge store of carbon subsurface, then is, is is this really something that we... That we want to do. What is our 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 um, risk analysis for the future uh, chance of having fire in the landscape, and how should we be managing to 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 mitigate against that? And I don't think that's really really thought of. It's great to have all of this uh, you know incredible biomass above the la- uh, um, above ground level and have these you know, huge flourishing forests, but that is an incredible fuel load. And that goes to a lot of the the issues that we've been talking about here, about protecting these, these fuel loads and not managing them, and then the problems that proliferate as a result of that.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I haven't thought of this, but I find it interesting that you guys talk about climate change from that perspective of like um – of like, we're releasing all of this carbon into the atmosphere through these fires. Cause I haven't heard that perspective in the U S um, that's something I actually have never really considered. So the way that we talk about climate change and in, in fires is that they're being prolifer- proliferated by climate change in that, um, you know, obviously uh, that human caused climate change is affecting the severity and the, the speed and the intensity of these fires. But I don't, yeah, I'm not really sure. I'm not sure on that. It's hard to say.
0: I just wondered whether that um, was maybe one of the barriers for prescribed burning because, yeah, I mean, you, what you say is well, is right. Like they, th- this is brought up. We're having uh, just the same as you guys. We're having uh, ho- hotter summers that are that are longer, that are that are drier, so that there's less precipitation, and it, it creates a, a much easier environment for fires to take hold and run. And yeah, so, exactly. in, in that regard, yeah, okay, the wildfires are. Partly as a result of the environment that's being created by uh, global climate change, but on the other hand, when we're actually looking at uh, fire mitigation measures and using it as a management tool, then you have the same people who are uh, you know talking about how what a terrible th- thing this is that uh, you know climate change is exacerbating the wildfires are saying, oh no, well, you can't then go and use fire as a management tool to help reduce fuel loads to reduce the risk of having large fires. Because look what you're doing. You're burning. You're burning biomass. You're putting carbon into the atmosphere. And yes, that is absolutely true. But you need to work out what the net gain is. And I, and I just wondered whether this very, very um, like intense focus on what can we do to lock carbon and to pull it out of the carbon cycle. Is one of the barriers that we face to using fire as a management tool, and in my mind, it, it's just so important that we really understand what our risks are and what our gains are.
1: Yeah, to me, I mean, I'm not a scientist. I have to make that disclaimer. I should have done that at the beginning, but um, I will say, I think, I think, like the smoke thing is definitely a barrier in the United States. Um, the 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 exacerbation, or maybe the uh, creation of smoke or the, the, um, releasing of carbon isn't, isn't much of a conversation here. Um, but I will say, I don't know. I think, I think that there's still that, that risk a reward thing. I think there's, there's a huge risk in, in putting more smoke into the air, especially in the off season when people, you know, are going to be, they're already, they've already dealt with fire season smoke. They don't want to deal with more smoke. Um, but I think the reward is that while you're releasing some of this carbon, you know, maybe you're, uh, you're at, ad- or you're encouraging more plant growth uh, that may or may not uh, benefit us in the future in that, in, in, in a similar way. I don't, I don't know. I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure on that one. <laughs>
0: yeah. It's just, I, I mean, I was really just thinking about it as we were talking. So this is me just spewing my mind thoughts yeah, onto yeah.
1: you. <laughs> I like it. That's fun to think about, though. That's something I haven't considered in the past, but I might have to think about that one a little more.
0: So, so what are the um, from the discussion that you've been having with people on the podcast and through your writing and through your own life experience? What measures are being put in place, and what does fire management look like in the U.S. and where do people want to see it it going? So that we can find this balance.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a delicate balancing act for sure. Uh, it's it's not only more prescribed fire, but it's changing the sort of regime of prescribed fire, like the structure of prescribed fire that we've accepted as being uh, that we've accepted over the last 30, 40 years. Um, the The current structure of prescribed fire isn't doing the amount of work that we need it to do at this point. And so I think moving forward, people are looking at decentralizing prescribed fire. And putting it back into the hands of landowners, of tribal members, of local fire practitioners, of communities, and sort of taking that authority over the land away from maybe these federal agencies that often don't have the funding or the resources to really do a whole lot. And in fact, uh, the federal government, most federal land agencies... uh, except for the Bureau of Land or the Bureau of Indian Affairs have stagnated their poly- their prescribed fire over the last 20 30 years so they're they're not doing as much as we think they're doing and they're not improving or they're not increasing their their prescribed fire load so it's like how can we make sure that we're doing what we need to be doing and I think the answer to that for a lot of people right now is creating these sort of prescribed fire associations in their communities uh, and finding the funding to do prescribed fire sort of buffers in their own areas and protecting their own communities and sort of taking that authority over their own, the land in their own backyards. Another part of that is the, of the sort of balancing act is going to be education and making sure people understand that while there's going to be a little bit of smoke in the air from these prescribed fires, it's going to ultimately benefit us in the future. It's going to ultimately prevent more of these large, uh, Fast burning wildfires coming into or threatening our communities in the future. It's going to ultimately, maybe 10, 15 years, maybe 10, 15 years down the road, it's going to ultimately maybe lessen the smoke impact on our communities in the middle of fire season. Uh, Another thing is is actually, uh, I'm writing a story about this for another magazine right now, um, is managing wildfires to do some of this forest management work. So we have something like 98% of the wildfires that we that burn in the US and in the west coast uh, especially aren't anything eventful. You know, they get they're they're put out within a couple days. They burn a couple hundred acres. It's pretty, you know, it happens. It's put out. Nobody hears about it. It doesn't end up on the news and it usually burns in areas that aren't necessarily threatening any infrastructure or any communities. And the new idea in, in the fire, not new necessarily, but uh, uh, an idea in the fire world now is to allow those fires to do some of this forest management for us so that we don't have to sit around and think about how we can get these prescribed fires that might only burn a couple hundred acres done when we can just allow fires burning maybe in May or June or July when when uh, extreme heat isn't a problem or extreme wind events aren't a problem if we have the right weather in place, if we have the right management in place, like we have our fire lines in place and we have the right amount of resources in place, maybe we can allow these fires to do some of that forest management for us and we can get a lot more done that way. We can we can do what's called box and burn. We can establish a large chunk of uh, of land that we need burned by cutting out roads and making sure that those fire lines are well established and then doing a burnout maybe. And that can burn thousands of acres versus a couple hundred acres that, that would normally be burned during a prescribed fire. So this sort of balancing act, because, you know, you also think about if one of those things got out, um, which is rare, but, you know, if something if something were to happen and that were to threaten a community, we also have to think about that community being resilient to the potential for those fires and also any wildfire in general. So it's a management, it's, you know, it's managing wildfires for greater forest, uh, for greater forest health, for greater Uh, you know, allowing more fire in the landscape. It's prescribed fire, it's community resilience, it's community education. It's just this huge balancing act and it's very complex, but it's, uh, I guess, you know, our problem is pretty complex. And so the answers are naturally going to be complex.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. As with most things in the natural world, especially when it comes to our interaction with it. Um, There's been um, (laughs) a a lot of discussion, not just in the the States, but I, I know that it was, I saw it in a couple of, articles in newspapers, just kind of at the end of the the big wildfires in, in Australia, which only really came to an end because it started to rain, not because of anything that that we managed to do, uh, is r- sort of resurrecting and embracing the indigenous knowledge of these landscapes. Like, and you started, you talked about this right at the start of the podcast, where where these landscapes had been managed with fire for thousands, if not tens of thousands of years, um and a lot of that knowledge has uh, to some extent been well it was certainly suppressed much like the fire um as european settlers moved into these different places um but some of it has been uh, lost or it's not as widely known anymore and yet it's it's incredibly incredibly valuable i mean the basket weaving example that we we discussed very briefly um is one example of many
1: yes exactly and i think i think it's just it's just a lot of a lot of that perspective uh that came from cultural burning or not even came from, but that contributed to control cultural burning. The idea that we are like interwoven with our landscapes that we rely on our landscapes just as much as anything else. Like we, you know, we're a part of this landscape and therefore, you know, we do have to have, we maybe do have a hand in, in, uh, in, in encouraging these plant in encouraging plant growth in, in, doing these, these burns. And I don't know, I, it's hard to explain because I, I haven't gone into this a ton and I haven't talked to a ton of, uh, of guests about this yet. And I can't wait to learn more. And in fact, I'm going to do a full series about indigenous burning. Yeah, on the I'd be
0: fascinated. I'm looking forward to that. I really looking. I, I I
1: can't wait to th- learn more about it. There,
0: there's so many <laughs> intriguing wait. aspects. I remember I read, and I need to, I, I need to try and find this paper again. And so that I can speak more articulately on it. I think it could have even been the exactly. same, uh, paper that was talking about the basket weaving, and um how that that particular tree that get that regrows w- with fire basically stopped existing or it stopped existing in a, in a way that it could be used for this um um yeah. it could be used for basket weaving um but i had also read something about fire being used to shade rivers this is going back to fish to to shade rivers in very very hot summer months uh, where it was, you know, the, the heat reduces the oxygen uh, in, in the waterways and can sometimes you know, affect the fish. And indigenous tribes in these places would burn rivers to actually drop smoke into these valleys and shade the rivers from the sun, which I thought wow. was fascinating. I haven't heard of that. I will dig that That's- out again because it was utterly fascinating. And you think to yourself, you know, we would never think of doing something like that now. And yet, you know, I've, I've I don't even think in the in the paper they they talked about how long they thought that might have gone on for, and I don't know if there's anybody alive today that would even be able to tell you how long that would have gone on for. Um, but it's just fascinating to think of these human interactions historically uh, in a, in a time where we maybe don't fully appreciate how much um, we interacted in the landscape in a a much more sympathetic and and symbiotic way
1: exactly yeah symbiotic is a good word for that but it's yeah
0: well i'm looking forward to you getting some guests on so that we can we can both learn more about the indigenous knowledge of fire
1: I can't wait. I'm um, I'm hoping to talk to a, a man, a wildland firefighter and fire manager in the Apostle Islands in Wisconsin, and I believe I'm talking to him uh, tomorrow. And I'm looking forward to getting his perspective, especially just because I haven't spoken to anybody in the Midwest yet. And they're using fire uh, to manage their tribal lands in that area, and I thought that was fascinating. And I'm hoping to talk to a few more people kind of in the um, – it would be nice to get somebody in, in the Rockies, Idaho, or something because I also uh, – or not in the Rockies, but in the, in the Great Basin, in the, in Colorado too. I've only ever spoken with anybody from that Northern California, the Karuk tribe. And I think, uh, I'd, I'd like to get, you know, a broader idea of what, of how it was impacting different areas, uh, in different tribes in different areas. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I wish I knew more about it right now. Um, I, I can't wait to talk to more people and get a little bit of better idea of, of kind of what that looked like and, um, and how that looks now. Mm -hmm.
0: Just, just as a way of, of finishing up, because I'm aware that we, uh, we didn't really talk about the, the details of what this actually entails, but when you're looking at um, pres- prescribed burning for managing forest, this isn't a case of just burning the whole forest down. This is uh, cool burns. You're often burning the understory and the fuel loads that, that exist, like just above the surface, like fallen timber and, and smaller t- trees. Just explain to me how that works.
1: Yeah. You're often doing these burns uh, in the in the rainy season or just on the precipice of the rainy season. So you're doing it in October, November, uh, maybe March, April, May. And you are looking for these sort of really specific weather conditions where the humidity is high, but not so high that you're not going to have viable spread, viable fire spread. And then of course, temperatures being mild, you know, you don't want them too low. You don't want them too high. And Preferably no wind. wind is not really ideal when you're doing prescribed fire when you're putting when you're putting fire on the ground in general. So uh, you're looking for these very specific weather conditions. And oftentimes that means uh, you're burning leaf litter, you're burning needles, you're burning underbrush. and oftentimes, uh, you know, you're burning in forests where uh, the trees are already fire adapted, and a lot of the trees are, you know, you know, maybe maybe you have these older growth trees or these these larger trees that have been, you know, they've seen fire, they, they know they're they're fire adapted, uh, but you're wanting to maybe burn out some of the smaller trees that might be taking resources away. I don't know. It's hard to explain, but uh, essentially you're, you're burning the understory. It's really mild. It's, it's low intensity and you're rarely burning, you know, the crowns of trees. Yeah. Fire is rarely getting into the trees themselves. So it doesn't look like um, the apocalypse
0: the, yeah. once, you, once you're finished. There, there's yeah, still the standing trees. There's still leaves in the upper yes. canopies.
1: Exactly. And you're still getting a huge amount of smoke. And that's what a lot of people, a lot of people get freaked out by that. And that's understandable. That's a huge, uh, and that, that inhibits a lot of, uh, or not inhibits, but that is something that is often thought about when planning these prescribed fires is how much smoke can we really put in the atmosphere today or in this community or at this, at this moment, or how many acres can we burn today, that will, you know, not meet that threshold of how much smoke we can put out. So, you know, you're still seeing a lot of smoke, but it's often very low, low intensity. It's the, the sort of historical norm, uh, for these sorts of landscapes. And, um, yeah, it's usually, it's actually often pretty fun. I've done a lot of prescribed fire. Uh, and if things go right, which they often do, it's, it can be an enjoyable experience and it's always fun to put fire in the ground, especially, When things are mild and the weather, the wind isn't burning or the wind isn't blowing and things aren't burning really intensely, um, which is often what a burnout (laughs) looks like on an actual wildfire. But yeah,
0: I I never asked you this question at the start, but I'm not sure if you actually have the numbers on top of your head. But I'm curious to know of all the fires that pop up, how many of them or what proportion of them? Um, are initiated by humans being stupid, and how many of them are natural causes? And and, and what n- would naturally actually cause a fire to start? Apart from lightning, I think most people are, you know, lightning would be the one pro- that springs to most people's minds.
1: I think something like 9 out of 10 fires are started by humans.
0: Okay, so we are This just summer stupid. we had a
1: huge... <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's often, whether it's cigarette butts or campfires that haven't been put out or a lot of the fires that i've responded to that are human caused are chains uh somebody leaving a chain on the back of their trailer and having it spark on the expressway and then starting a fire next to the expressway like Mm -hmm. really random things that are like okay well that was dumb but you know it's not like you're being it's not like you're being it's it's not that nefarious yeah (laughs) but it's often (laughs) it's uh I think one of the biggest fires I've been on was resulted from a guy burning weeds in his yard with like a flamethrower. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. A little on, gas. The little fly. gas guns. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh but I think this summer was was kind of unique in that we had a lot of lightning strikes. A lot of the fires that became complexes became these huge proliferations in California were results, uh were were started by Uh, lightning strikes. We had a lightning storm come through in August and I believe another one in September. And that's why a lot of those fires, when that east wind came in early September, there was already a lot of fire on the ground and a lot of those fires hadn't been started by humans. And so that's when you're like, okay, these things did happen traditionally. This is historically what, what fire seasons looked like. You get a huge lightning bust and you have two or three of these small fires grow into each other and become a big fire. And then a huge wind event comes in and there's nothing we can do about any of that. There's nothing that we did to contribute to any of that. I mean, obviously there's the management of these forests and, and how overgrown they are that actually absolutely contributes to how fast they spread. But the actual act of lightning striking and then wind coming in and blowing these fires up, uh, is all natural. It's all historically, it's all historically sound. So, uh, yeah, this is a this was a unique summer for that I think, and then of course you have people that like the the gender reveal party that started the Dorado <laughs> fire. That was
0: ridiculous. Which is ridiculous. That was and in California. Was it?
1: In a firefighter. it was in California, oh. Southern California, um, and it resulted in a firefighter death. And it's like, do we? Okay, it's a whole another topic, but gender reveal parties, man. I am just absolutely. <laughs> I'm just over it i'm over gender reveal parties <laughs> especially when you're you're using tannerite to to do it
0: <laughs> it, it was fireworks it was it was fireworks that, that set it off was it
1: uh, no i think it was the things that you um it was it was tannerite or tannerite that you would shoot to it's like a, it's an explosive that you shoot and you can load them with whatever color you'd like um and oh, that like was so. Okay, it. so
0: it's like blue. Yeah. It's a boy. Yeah, yeah. Okay, oh, I didn't realize exactly. that. I mean, it's you just go to a
1: shooting range <laughs> and you set it up. And I've actually watched these things get. You know, I have redneck friends, so <laughs> I've seen this happen. <laughs> <laughs> i just have never seen it happen in august during a red flag warning yeah, it's just dumb you know yeah. in southern california it's
0: just a dumb human and you'd think living especially in california that people would know i mean the fires there for the last couple of years have been terrible i think some of the, the second biggest fire in california in history was last year or the year before like yes, single burn fun. yeah
1: exactly yeah and we're looking at fires that are three hundred thousand acres now uh regularly um and so yeah it's it's a tough balance. I don't know. Maybe Smokey the Bear needs more of a presence in Southern California with these people. Maybe. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah. Get, get Smokey. In fact, he doesn't need to go in the other states. Just Smokey send, send Smokey in. Send Smokey in. Amanda, it's been brilliant to speak to you. It's a really fascinating topic that I um, I, I, don't know whether it's just because I'm uh, like a closet py- um, pyromaniac um, or whether it's just the complexities of the science and, and fire ecology that fascinates me. But it's something that I've always been intrigued by. Uh, so uh, yeah, I was I I've really enjoyed listening to your podcast series, you know, specifically tackling this fire in the landscape and and how how we manage it and how we use it. So thank you so much for coming on today and giving us a, a little bit of an insight.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me. I, I really enjoyed your questions. It was you know some of them were challenging, and I can't wait to sort of I can't wait to do some research and and look up some of the topics that we talked about. Oh, I mean, we're always kind of learning.
0: About- this is the great thing. I mean, this is this is it. this is why I do podcasts is because. Uh, you get insights from guests that just make you think or evaluate uh, an opinion or a, or a point of view in, in a different way, and then you can either go off on a tangent with them, or yeah, you you end up thinking I really need to look into that a little bit more because uh, sometimes we don't we don't think of all, all all the questions that we want to actually know the answers to. So, no, I, I really really appreciate your insights and your time.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Byron. I really appreciate it.